You're listening to the Building Stronger Agents podcast, where we interview the top solo agents, team leaders, and brokers across the country to see what makes them thrive in today's market and beyond. Welcome to the current edition of Building Stronger Agents podcast. And today, uh, I'm very excited to interview one of my very good friends who's in my market. Uh, he's a really productive real estate agent, but more importantly than that, uh, he owns uh, about 100 properties and he's only 30 what, Justin? Uh, I turned 36 Saturday. 36 years old. And he used uh, his real estate career. I know his dad. His dad's been in the real estate business for as long as I have, like 1987, 1988. And uh, basically, he used his real estate career to leverage his empire. Uh, now he owns how many units? Uh, 118. 118 units. So today we're going to talk about, we're going to break down how he got into this, how he started getting into the rental property business. I know he's flipped a lot of homes, but today we're going to focus on uh, his rentals and how an average real estate agent at the time leveraged his way into the real estate business. And uh it's pretty exciting stuff. So welcome to the show, Justin. Why don't you, uh, his name's Justin Akins, by the way. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into real estate and how you got to where you are here today? Great, thanks. So yeah, I, I feel like I've been in real estate my whole life. As Will mentioned, my dad's been an agent my entire entire life, 36 years. So um, growing up, I was around real estate um, just back when there was no cell phones. Everyone was calling our home, so we were his answering service. So, but anyway, I... I got into real estate in 2009, um, which was a terrible time to get your license. But I, uh, I, I got my license out of college. I was living in my parents' basement. Um, I got fired from selling windows. So I needed something else to do other than work at a car wash. So I got my real estate license. So uh, that was the beginning of it about, you know, what's that 13 years ago. Right. So at fall of 15, you lost your job. And uh, you got into real estate. What did your first year look like? 2009, I got my license, but I also took a full-time job. Um, kind of coincidentally, at the exact same day, I, I got my license. I got an offer for a, for a full-time job. And everyone in my life told me to take that because of what was going on in the economy. So um, I took that job. But because I had my license, I was able, over those six years, between uh, 2009 to 2015, learn how to sell real estate, learn the market, learn how to use MLS, write a contract. You know, and I was really just working, you know, with very close friends and family. It wasn't really wasn't working with the public. You know, maybe I do an open house or something for my dad, but I was just pretty much people that I, if I screwed up, they wasn't, I had an easy excuse to, uh, you know, tell them why. When you started thinking about acquiring investment properties, was it a proactive thought? Did it just happen? I remember actually being a listing agent on a Twinplex you bought. Yeah, you were the listing agent of the on first property. Twinplex on Wild. Wild Avenue. Right. Um, yeah, 2010, I bought my first duplex. Um, as I mentioned, I was living in my parents' basement, so I wanted to get out of there. And uh, I, I just, it just felt like, a, felt like the right thing to do is to live in one side and run out to friends or someone else next door and help supplement my mortgage payment, my my living expenses. At the time I was 24, 25 years old. Um, so I bought a duplex. Uh, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, um, also we moved in. That was our first place together. And then I rented to two buddies from college who were uh, finishing their fifth or sixth years. 
and uh, they lived next door to us. And uh, my mortgage payment was eight fifty, and they were paying me six fifty in rent. So my girlfriend was paying for the groceries. I paid utilities, so I think it was all in for like three four hundred dollars a month. You got an you've got an agent in the business who's young, and obviously you're you're a pretty big cheerleader for owning investment properties at this stage. Um, I mean, you're at 36 years old. Uh, you still you sell 20 to 30 million dollars worth of real estate as well. Uh, let's not forget that. But you practically don't have to sell houses now because of what you've done with your, uh, you know, with acquiring so many properties. But you've you've bought them lately a different way than you did early on. But if you've got a new agent who wants to start getting into this whole business and they don't have a ton of money, uh, what do they do? As I got started, I was living in the duplex call it house hacking where you have somebody supplement either you can buy a single family house and rent rooms to a friend or two um, you can buy a duplex a three or four uh, are typically the, the starting levels um, what I focused on was you know will teases me but being extremely frugal um, and, and with with the intention of wanting to buy more real estate it wasn't you know listen we were still having fun and doing the stuff you know kids in their or guys in their mid twenties did, but I was, I was trying to just save as much money as possible and make as much money as possible. So, um, my, I convinced my dad at the time, again, this is back 2011, uh, to, to buy it, buy a house and, and let's flip it. I had no money. I I had, I had some money, but not enough to, to get involved with that. So my second deal ever was a flip as a partner with my dad, that the deal was, we buy the house. He paid cash for it, thirty-eight thousand. Um, my wife and I were the labor alongside my dad, and we would split it fifty percent to him and fifty uh, percent to us. And at that point, I think we bought it for thirty-eight. We were all into it for fifty-three, and we sold it for eighty-seven. I think we ended up splitting somewhere around thirty thousand dollars. So um, Angie and I split. 14, 15,000. She got her half. I got my half. And, uh, that was the, the stepping stone to kind of proof of concept for me is I saw how the house hacking worked. I saw how flipping worked and getting chunks of money. Mm -hmm. I didn't go out and spend that seven grand on, you know, down payment for, for a watch or clothes or anything like that. I, I took that money and I saved it. And, right. you know, at that point I'd had a full-time job and I was making, okay money, but I was just trying to live as frugally as possible to save money for the next project. And I took that mindset serious. So I would, I would get a sales commission or a sales bonus in my job. I'd save it. I didn't live off the bonuses. I lived off my, my $30,000 a year salary. I, so I was getting these bonuses. Next thing you know, I had a down payment saved up for a next rental. So I bought my my next property has $63,000 put 20% down. Cause now you're an investment. So, you know, I'm out of pocket on this 15, $20,000 after the rehab and I'm running this one out. And I took that mindset for those first couple of years very seriously. And no single rental property is going to change anyone's trajectory of, you know, where their life is heading. But if you can compound them in a, in a shorter amount of time, three, $400 a month of cash flow starts to add up quickly when you can put 
two, three, five, ten properties in your portfolio in two to three years. And now I'm living, I'm starting then how I did it is I took that cash flow and started identifying personal expenses to eliminate. So I, I moved out of the duplex, moved Angie and I, when we got married, we bought a, a house. How could I live for free? Cash flow from rentals. So I just would get the get those numbers working and next thing you know, our mortgage is paid for it. So if you don't have your personal mortgage you're responsible for, now that adds to your overall cash flow as a household and it compounds. So in addition to trying to find those additional pops of, of equity, as far as like a flip, a bonus, a commission, whatever those were start things that started to happen and add up, you can able, you're able to, to save more money and um, use that money to reinvest into more assets that pay you cash flow every single month. Unfortunately, most real estate agents, when they get in the business and we see them, the first thing they do is they go buy a fancy car. So now they've got a big car payment and then they go and get credit card debt by buying uh, if you're women bags and fancy clothes and if you're guys you know watches and they want to look the part which if you if you've read the book the millionaire next door they in that book they talk about guns and butter and the problem with uh, prodigious accumulators of wealth which you would be considered you 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 find spending money on things that don't go up in value or at least maintain their value is repellent and you try to focus on the things that do create value but now at just 36 years old now you're able to buy whatever you want but you made those sacrifices early on and you focused on what was important so that you could create wealth because if you do it early on uh you're gonna like you said the compounding effect of it over time is going to be just in terms of paying a mortgage down or you know it, that's the main thing if you buy them early on then by the time you're 50 uh, you know a most things will be paid off or if, if you want them to pay, be paid off, absolutely. I think the most important, how I, how I look at this is like, there's a lot of education on real estate investing right now. Podcasts, YouTube, pick your favorite person on social media that screams at their phone about telling you how to do something. Right. Nothing is given to you. Nothing. Right. right. I, no, I, and my dad is an absolute, I'm, I'm blessed that my had my dad as a resource to show me how not to screw up as much because I absolutely screwed up, but he would show me how not to, you know, what not to do initially. So I am well aware of that. However, you have to understand, like you have to educate yourself, but take what the education is telling you and apply it to a reality. You can wholesale, you can, buy fix and flips. You can buy rentals. I mean, there's all sorts. You can lend money. You can syndicate. There's so many ways to make money in real estate investing, but you have to understand what works for you and your market and the value of what you're trying to accomplish in, that, in front of you, the deal in front of you. So a lot of the, a lot of people see is social media, YouTube, you know, podcasts of instant success. That is far from the truth that yeah. is that that is just them trying to sell you a course their systems are you have to educate yourself and you have to take action that are the, those are the two biggest 
you know, takeaways I've, 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 you know, thought of over the past, you know, 10 years of me actively buying and selling and investing in real estate. What do you think are the mistakes that you would encourage other people to try to avoid? Don't force a deal. That is, that is number one. Don't force right there. Um, you can, you can really try to, I mean, there's ways to make deals happen, but if you're, if you're making a decision on every single thing happening in, in your like, positively towards you and you're forcing this to happen, just don't do it. Um, don't buy a property to flip if you're not willing to keep it, if you have to. Um, those were something, something else I've always looked at is, um, you know, if I'm going to invest my money and, you know, crap hits the fan, I can keep this, have multiple exit strategies from the transaction if everything that you were trying to accomplish doesn't go right. So, the, I mean, there's others. Um, but to recap know, I, real quick, so to recap that, one of the mistakes I see people making, and it's very easy to make, people get, guys get so anxious and tied up and being able to tell people that they're an investor, that they'll end up making emotional decisions just to complete the purchase so that they can say that they own something and they get so tied up in the competition to get it that they're not treating it like a business. Absolutely. And if, and the money, you've always told me, the money's made when you buy it, not when you sell it, because you can't sell it for more later to make up the difference of the, the any bad decisions that you made on the purchase. Right. Absolutely. And there's been flips that I've done where most even this year we had a we had a pretty significant rehab budget and I split seven thousand dollars with somebody I was doing the deal with. And that didn't feel good um, because everything didn't happen the way we, you know, we thought it was going to. But again, we protected ourselves because we we bought at the right price. Um, we could have, you know, saved the deal or kept it, but that, that, that wasn't the, the purpose for what we were doing. I was doing it with a, with a partner. Um, but again, to what you were saying is like, you, you make the most money on the deal when you buy it at the right value initially. Um, and then to what I said a few minutes ago, educate yourself on property costs, contractors, all you have to know. You don't have to know it to the dollar amount, but you have to be pretty close that if everything went wrong, let's play worst case scenario in our head. If everything went wrong, we could get out of this and, and still be you know in the black and not in the red. Right, because you don't want to be too many people base things on best case scenarios. I mean, you know, like when we have clients just when we're helping people buy and sell homes, you'll they'll be moving. And it, they, if they don't get a certain price, then like none of it can work. But I think what you're saying is when you're trying to buy uh, investment properties, whether it's to flip or to hold long term, you have to be patient. You have to not be to, so anxious to make the deal that you hurt so yourself later. What, force the deal, but don't force the deal, but be ready to say and take action quickly. You have to be confident in yourself, in your education of your local market, of your network of contractors, of your you know, projected costs. You have to be confident. And, and that all takes experience, of course. However, you have to be able to take action quickly because if you don't, 
me or somebody else like me is coming right behind you and we're going to do it. Yeah. So it's, um, but that's, again, that takes, that takes experience it's from somebody that's looking to start out. Um, that's where I got a, a lot of value by working with investors as their real estate agent by self-educating or as a real estate agent, I'm going to the home inspections to learn. My home inspector was annoyed at me for me asking so many questions about the property because I'm, I'm there educating myself on the overall condition of properties so I can take that and translate it to my investment side of the business. So again, none of that's given to you. Nobody likes being at a home inspection for three hours. The inspector doesn't like me asking him, you know, 25 questions while he's trying to get the heck out of there. However, I'm there and I'm trying to educate myself on this. So when I go and, and look at a property and the condition of it, I've already know those answers while I'm there making the decision quickly so I can take quick action versus the next person who's got to go home and, you know, make a spreadsheet about it. So you've been built, you've just built your knowledge based on uh, educating yourself on the process and the costs and all of that. The one thing I've noticed with you over the years, just watching your career evolve since we've known each other such a long time, you've always leveraged your relationships. So you got in with investors, help them buy and sell, and then maybe partner with them on a deal. And you both use your own strengths and weakness, you know, your both strengths to make it uh, work out for the best. You've always had like this multifaceted approach by working with others, bringing other people in. You've almost made it a team effort on some things. Well, it is. I think it's important to have a lot of empathy in this business because real estate's a very lonely business, but also a very interactive business, which doesn't necessarily, you know, it sounds like it's an oxymoron, but every single morning, I don't wake up and think about what Will has to do today is sell a house. I'm thinking about myself or my investments. Will's not thinking about me or, or maybe some people on your team, but right. outside you're not thinking about anybody else's business. However, we need each other to have transactions happen. So right. when I'm looking at the real estate sales and investing is how can everybody win and put themselves in the best position to do what they're the best at? Right. I, you, you don't want me hanging stuff up, but hanging your cabinets because we're done. Like we're, we're not selling going to be crooked and they're going to fall off the wall. Right. However, oh, my partner, Casey and his construction company, we've partnered now because I'm really good at sales, finding deals, financing. He's really good. He's got, I, he's really good at the construction part, but he's also aware of the other parts of the deal, just as I'm aware of the construction, but how can we best, best execute on those transactions? So we both are, you know, using each other's strengths to, to move forward and maximize one time, but also the energy and, and dollars that we get out of the deals. And you've lived the half a loaf of bread thing because you've accomplished so much more by bringing these partners in and by, because you bring value to them. Uh, uh, but I've just seen that you've, you haven't just been out doing it on your own. You've, you've brought other people in and that's what's enabled you to leverage so much more quickly, I think, uh, than some others. It's based on having trusting relationships because you've built these relationships with these guys. And now you've got, I mean, you've got rental properties uh, around a university and you brought some friends in on that, right? Because And then yep. she's managing the units for you. So it's like, you couldn't have done that all on your own, not necessarily financially, but you're bringing these people in because there's value in the, in the people. Well, that's exactly it. It's, it's um, when I was just, I, I own some, some university rentals and, and when 
my wife and I were deciding with our friends to buy these. That's exactly it. I'm, I'm going in, we're going into this saying, if I'm the front end with 45, 50 college kids, however many bedrooms there are, I'm just simply, the answer is just simply going to be no, you couldn't give them to me because I don't have the capacity to manage those types of students or those types of, of tenants. tenants yeah. But I can help. But so she came when we were meeting to, to decide if we we're going to move forward with this. They came and was saying, we want to be the front end with the students, but I don't know who to call if X, Y, or Z happens from a, from a maintenance or a construction standpoint, Which you know. but that, but that's exactly what I do. So I've got a ton of those contractors and, or how to manage some, you know, situations from a, you know, if something were to come up, you know, I've got the management experience, but I don't want to be on the front line dealing with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds. Um, just from, my, yeah, well, just what's going on on my day to day in my, in my career and my life. And, and not to say that, you know, that's where she had some capacity and I, I'm really good with supporting her and helping her get her issues solved, but it's, it's a good partnership. Yeah. And you'd rather make some of the money than none or all, because if you made all of it on this, your whole life would be taken up with all the stuff be, you don't want to do. Yeah, and the other stuff that is, is to me more profitable. The other thing that I've noticed that you're really good at, um, you always know the market. It's like you always know, like I'll mention a house that I listed and you already knew about it. Like you always know the local inventory, you know, the pending sales, you know, what's sold recently. And I think that what should be taken from all of that, we as real estate agents, we, we try to cut corners. One of the ways that you've been able to act so quickly and build that confidence because you do, you do something as basic as checking the market every day and seeing what's going on in the market and off the market, don't you? How important every, is that? It's, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm well aware that I'm a real estate nerd. Um, I, I, I'm very involved in real estate, so I understand a lot of people maybe aren't as much. Um, but it, you have to educate on educate yourself on the current market today, understand what's, and as you do it on a daily basis, you just remember, you can see trends, you can see, you know, values, you can, I mean, you under, you really start to understand where, where everything's um, moving towards. And then also take into consideration, you know, what the projected, you know, next three to six months are going to be when you're deciding, you know, if you're deciding to do a flip or, you know, keeping your, you know, finger on the pulse of the rental market, the values that you can get and right. you know, kind of back into the math of deals through knowing what the market values of, you know, rents are, you know, I can pay X, Y, and Z, you know, here, if I can get this much rent and then are you okay making that, you know, kind of return. And at that point you have the confidence to, you know, take action quickly. So again, education and education is not just you know, I like bigger pockets or I like podcasts or I like, you know, some YouTube channel. It's, it's, Local it's all market. right. And, and, and that could be, and maybe, you know, someone's not an agent, but they need to have those agent relationships. Maybe, maybe you're a younger agent and you don't have the financial capacity yet to take as much action. Um, but if you bring somebody who does a deal and you want some equity on this and there's a, a way to learn, that's the best way to learn because you've been paying your dues at the home inspections and learning and 
you know, finding a deal to somebody and you can come to somebody that has the ability to take action from, from the money standpoint, that's valuable. Bring me a deal, bring somebody who can say yes quickly to a deal. There's a lot of, I'm happy to give you a piece of that. And then back to what I started with, that's a hunk of money. You save that. You don't live on that. You don't go, you don't go out all weekend and blow, you know, that, that hunk of money. You save that, you save the next one, you save the next one. And now you don't need me for that fourth one because you've already been saving these. Now we're going on your own. So, so again, on your wins. Right. So you got, you, you stay, you stay even throughout wins and loses or wins and losses. You have to stay even because stuff always comes up and stuff always happens that you're not expecting both good and bad. So you have, you try to stay as even as possible. Um, not to say that is the easiest thing to do, but it's, uh, it's important to keep a level head throughout the entire, you know, year. And through all your successes, you're, you're, you haven't raised your bills. You don't have these big outlandish purchases. Uh, you're just, you're keeping yourself pretty safe financially. Yeah, because I'm not doing this for a year or two. I'm, I'm doing this at 36 years old. So that I say yes to whatever I want to say yes to in the in the future, and 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 that or say no to whatever you want to say no to that that freedom of that. That's why I do this. It's it's not for money. It's for time. There, I mean, there's a lot of super rich people who are really miserable. I'm not interested in, in in being miserable. I want to be able to say yes and no to whatever I want to say yes or no to, whenever I want to. And I don't want somebody to have leverage over me that it doesn't matter if, you know, I have to do something I'm not interested in. That's my driver. It's, and, and money's a byproduct of that without a question. But my driver is when I have a four and a two-year-old, when, when they, I, I, if I don't want, if I want to be a coach of every single sport that they play ever, I can say yes to that. I might not want to coach, you know, something I'm not familiar with or, you know, that's not, to, you know, that. Right, right. I want that freedom and that ability to say yes or no to whatever I want to within reason. Again, I don't live like the first round draft pick driving, you know, fancy car. <laughs> right. I got I, like, I, that's just, I've not been bugging problem. you about your Lincoln now for a while. This, this guy drives a Lincoln. Oh my yeah. God. I mean, every <laughs> other 75 year old out there. <laughs> hey man. So speaking of knowing the market, the last thing, what I want to close on, Somebody who's so, again, you own a lot of properties in this changing market. Do you have any suggestions or any words of wisdom like for other investors? I mean, as we're going into this market where we're not sure exactly where it's going, we don't know what rates are going to do. Are they going to go up more? Are they going to come down quickly? How do you make decisions in a market like this? Since this is the first time you've been through this too, where's your head at? I think, I think you have to look at your own personal situation more than the external factors. Don't make irresponsible decisions that will drastically affect your personal situation. I can afford as a seasoned investor with that isn't over leveraged, that has capital reserves, that I can make decisions that if I can ride the wave, if it goes down, I don't want to. But if, if, if I make a decision and I have to wait for it to bounce back, um, I, can, I can manage that. Somebody who's second or third property, and now we're, we're making a decision that's going to drastically affect their day-to-day, -day, 
I, I, I know it's counter to what I just said, but just really be sure that you're getting a good deal. Don't like really take consideration of those, those factors, like play every worst case scenario out in your head that if, if you're that sensitive to something that you're not able to control, you know, make sure that you're, you're confident and, and really confident that you're, you're buying the best deal because you know, it's, um, you know, so, so for example, if, if I bought a house in, in December of 20 or December, 2007, and it dropped the next year in 2008, which a lot of people did, I can wait, I can wait 10 years till it bounce back in value to 2017. Cause it would have been roughly what, what, what it was worth in 10 years. If you can't do that, then, then, then don't buy it there. There's always going to be more deals always. So just really take an, an internal look at, at your personal situation and, and, you know, really have the confidence if, if this is the deal that you want to take, you know, take the next step with. And I can think of a couple of deals that you were in just because we talk all the time. Um, the one where uh, you got, you built the house up in Cleveland, it didn't sell. And then Casey turned it into a VRBO. If people were count, if people built that and they were counting on that, you know, like a horse race, they were counting on uh, blue winning and it didn't, you know, he was able to flip that into a VRBO because he, he made decisions based on worst case scenarios, not on best. Like if this thing doesn't sell, what, what's my outlook? And it didn't sell. And he turned it into a VRBO because he'd already thought that through in his head that he was capable of doing it. Correct. Well, and, and what's, what's, yes, without a question, he uh, was protected by, you know, the worst case scenario on that specific situation. When you spend as much time on a transact on a deal, you have to decide what's the best overall return. He could have dropped his price, dropped his price right, and, right, right. you know, and eventually sold it because it, it would have sold, but then he spent X amount of time doing to make Y that doesn't make sense for him where he built in his best case scenario is he can restructure refinance. And at that point he's got a, you know, VRBO Airbnb, which will, you know, cash flow for him. He'll have an, an asset that he is very confident in owning and hopefully be able to ride up the, you know, where with rates drop again, values return to where, where he's confident that he can sell it and, and, and cash out of it. So again, that's back to what we said is, is have multiple exit strategies if best case scenario doesn't work out. That's so important because so many people have lost. Well, you think of the housing crash before, it was all because of not thinking about if, you know, getting the Fannie Mae 125, you know, borrowing 125,000 on a $100,000 house. And you loan. Those, right? Yeah. yeah uh, I and you wonder why they all fell apart. Fortunately, I mean, there's not those those lending programs out there. No, for the we're going to be fine. We're not going to have a housing crash. No, we'll be. I mean, especially because of how, if anyone's wanted to refinance over the last three years, I mean, your home was never more affordable than it was. You know, at, you know, three percent low. You know, between four and two and a half percent, where rates were floating for the past couple of years. Like, right. More people are are can afford their mortgage payment that they've ever been able to before. Yeah. Which is proven by the fact that when you had 53 showings on a, on a listing in April, May, 
that's 53 people that had great jobs, plenty of assets, were confident in their situation. That to me, that was my crystal ball of where the economy was. If you've got 50 or 60 or 40 or 30 showings, those are human beings that all feel good enough to put their hat in the ring and try to buy a house in a very quick situation. And that to me is what gave me confidence in the economy. And the housing market this time around isn't going to drag the economy down because the, the more financially fit people were the only ones that were able to buy houses. Not like the last time where they were creating products for the week. This is all people that had extra money, 20% down cash. The poor FHA and VA buyers and 5% down conventional and OFA buyers, they had to sit on the sidelines. So it's And it's probably lucky they did. Because it, as values adjust, the people that are in these homes, for the most part, can handle that drop because they were in a better situation in the first place, don't you think? I think so, too. And then also consider that a lot of those people, if they were financing, were locking in, you know, three to four percent interest rates. And they're fixed rates. Fixed rates. So they're protected. I mean, they don't have the, the volatility of the, of the interest rate market that, you know. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that we're not going to have a housing crash. We don't have a glut. We don't have a glut of inventory either. Well, so that's also why, you know, people, I mentioned refinancing. Why would people want to go take on, you know, sit mid six to mid 7% interest when they're currently at mid threes? No, you know, they won't need to. They'll never need to refinance. Situation that's making you move and um, forcing you to move. So that's, I mean, and trust, there's always going to be people buying and selling real estate. So don't, don't make me sound like everyone's just going to stay put, but, um, no, it, I'm confident in, in the housing market as far as staying, you know, relatively strong. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. We won't see as much appreciation. We'll, you know, granted, you and I are in Northeast Ohio, so we'll probably plateau here. We, we're just not as volatile as there are other, you know, you know, other cities across the country. But um, you know, we're. I feel like the market's still going to be very strong. Oh, I do too. Yeah. Any realtors who are listening to this, as long as you keep your head down. You know, all of the triggers that cause a move, birth, death, divorce, relocation, bankruptcy, graduation, those triggers never go away. During the best market, during the worst market, there's always going to be people that are going to need to buy or need to sell, irregardless of the, uh, the, the interest rates or anything else. And as long as you remain re relevant and you keep your arms around your relationships, uh, you're going to you're going to be successful. Because what happens is, as we keep talking about, as a market goes like this, where you lose a 10% or 20% reduction in the total number of sales, there's a disproportionate number of fallout with, with the mid-range real estate agents that just go and get other jobs. So that it's like having a, it's like having a buffet with only half as much food out, but nobody shows up and you're like, man, there's a ton of food here tonight. Right. Somebody want, somebody told me, you know, as a, when I was a newer agent, you know, when somebody asked you, Ask you, you know, how's the market? The answer is always, it's, it's a good time. It's a great market. Or it's Just unbelievable. Like Mark said back, our, our mutual friend Mark said, when I interviewed him last week, he said during 2007, 8, and 9, every time someone says, how's the market, he'd say unbelievable. Because that could go either way. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's a good market. If you're a buyer, you didn't yeah. ask me if buying or selling, how's the market? It's good. You know, do you want to buy or sell? or the other, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's... To, to the real estate sales side of this, you just have to, nobody, like nobody's giving you deals, you, you know, whether it's your, you know, the, the, the leads you buy or the network that you, you know, you, you continue to, you know, stay in touch with and grow and like, you just have to work. I mean, you have to work. 
nonstop, nonstop, continue to work. If you stop nurturing your past clients and network and or the leads that you have in front of you, you will be slow four to six weeks after that. It, it, it's, it's, it happens, you know, I've done it. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that I haven't, but like when you take your eye off of your current business, you will slow down in the future because you haven't maintained those relationships and that activity that nurtures those, that business in the future. So just got to continue to, to hustle and work and, and overall, I mean, everything will, you know, I, I believe the market's still going to be very good. I think 2023 will still be good. We won't have as many real estate agents, but that's a personal choice as well. If you want to work, you can stay in this business. Uh, if you don't want to work and you just want to wait there with your catcher's mitt on, hoping people show up, then you're going to probably end up having to get another job. But either way, you know, it, you get to choose that. Right. I agree. Listen, thanks for coming on today, man. I really appreciate it. I think people are getting a lot, a lot of good information on this. And thanks everyone for listening and continue to listen to this podcast. We'll continue to bring uh, top-notch realtors on this podcast so that you can learn from them. Thanks a lot, Justin. Thanks, Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Building Stronger Agents podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review and share our podcast with your friends.